If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. This is Everything is Personal with Len May. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Hey, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes. I didn't introduce you yet, John, but oh, as sorry. usual. <laughs> well, no, the crowd, <laughs> co-host. the crowd is so off today. They just, they're so I love giddy them. after I love being that. out from COVID, back from COVID that they, uh, they're, they're premature on their, yeah. um, on their applause. Well, so I apologize. Well, Mr. John Small. Yes. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> But I don't want to steal any of the thunder. We've got a great guest no, today. No, great guest. Yes, yep. great guest. So uh, I'm going to try to uh, do an intro, but uh, the, the the guests will uh, do a much better job than me, I'm sure. So today I am uh, grateful to have the former NFL great writer, uh, producer, podcast host, a uh, bunch of other uh, you know, things that we can talk about, uh, Mr. Nathan Ross Jackson. Walk wow. Woo. You got my middle name. Like Welcome, Nathan. I got the middle name in First there. name right, too, man. That's impressive. <laughs> nice. Uh, thanks, man. Yeah, Welcome. Happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, thanks for being on. So yeah. is, did I leave anything out uh, from the intro in terms uh, of uh, background? Not really. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a writer. Uh, I'm in radio now. So right. I do, I work for a sports talk radio station here in Denver, Colorado. I, I left LA. I don't know if I right. told you that, but I moved out of LA about a year ago. So I'm back in Denver where I played for six years for the Broncos and I'm doing right. some radio stuff. And uh, yeah, other than that, you got it right. Nice. Cool. So you grew up in Northern Cali, like San Jose, was it right? Yep. Yep. San okay. Jose, California. Cool. And then uh, you you played football as a kid, and then uh, like what what was your uh, background like growing up? Yeah, so so I grew up in San Jose, which is in the Bay Area, and uh, every single kid on my block was in love with the San Francisco 49ers. That <laughs> was our those were our heroes: Jerry Rice, Joe Montana, even Bill Walsh, the head coach there, yeah. and all those guys. So every every weekend and every day during the summer, we were out in the street playing football and. Um, my dream was to be a football player, mm -hmm. but my parents didn't want me to play tackle football. My parents were both educators, um, both teachers and didn't want their son smashing skulls with other kids. Go figure. And, uh, <laughs> and so told me I couldn't play until I got to high school. So I was a swimmer actually growing up, a very competitive, very dedicated swimmer. That was my first love. Um, as far as athletics goes as, as, as me competing in it, I was also a soccer player. So it wasn't until I got to high school 
that uh, my parents said, okay, you're old enough, go for it now. And so I put on a helmet and uh, put in a mouthpiece and started smashing skulls, and that started my career as a football player. But you you were a pretty big dude, right? Uh, growing up, like you know, you were... I wasn't I wasn't huge growing up. I was uh, yeah. when I was a little kid, I was pretty muscular, right. but um, but I hit puberty later than a lot of other kids, so I wasn't you know I didn't go into high school as a big kid. I was five seven, five eight, one hundred thirty oh, really? pounds as a freshman. Yeah, wow. not a big guy. So when I first started playing football. I was I hadn't hit puberty yet, and and there I was playing against kids who had and who had some some skills and had been playing since Pop Warner. So um, that was a that was a learning experience for me for sure. You know, football is so much about technique, and if you don't know what you're doing, you go out there against guys who have do do know what they're doing, and they rock you. I mean, they right. know how to hit, and uh, they take catch you under the chin. And so it, it was a good learning experience for me that first year especially but um sophomore year i hit puberty started getting hair in funny places guys and 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 with that i started playing a little better football and i grew like two inches every year in high school by the time i was a senior i was like six two six three and uh, coming into my what positions did you play um early on and then and then you know through college and and then the nfl yeah so uh freshman year i was a running back um and Mm. i you know thought i was going to be a running back they stuck me back there. And like I said, I was the freshman prepubescent kid going up against sophomores who knew how to hit. And uh, it didn't really go well as a running back for me. So my sophomore year, I switched to quarterback because I had a good arm and I wanted to play quarterback. Right. So um, it, it quickly became apparent though my sophomore year that I was going to be a backup because my buddy, Justin was the starter. He was a starting quarterback and I didn't want to sit on the bench. So at the end of my sophomore year, I switched to wide receiver uh, the last game of the season, sophomore year, I played wide receiver, and I loved it. I mean, I loved having that ball come at me. It was I'd been playing catch so much as a kid and running routes and being in the street and at the park. It was just a natural instinct to catch the ball, and that's what I realized that I was born to do out on a football field. So when I went into varsity as a junior and a senior, that's what I did. I played wide receiver and free safety. Back then, you had to play both ways, both sides of the ball. We had like 30 guys on our football team. These days, everyone's specialized. You don't play both ways unless you don't have the numbers. But back then, everybody played both ways, and and so I did the same. And then, so when you were going coming out of high school, were you uh, were you getting a scholarship? Were you like uh, I know you went to Menlo College? Yeah. Was that was that the one? That, <clears throat> so were you uh, being looked at by you know Division One schools or like what was the uh, what was the situation coming out of high school because you started so late? Yeah, so high school. Uh, I went to a small high school, and there's a lot of high schools in San Jose, 25 or 30 of them. So we were one of the smaller schools. So I didn't I didn't get recruited much at all out of high school, and so I walked on to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys are familiar with that mm-hmm. school. Yeah, I mm-hmm. applied yeah. and I got in as a student, um, and went and talked to the football coach and he um, said, you know, we can't give you a scholarship, but uh, you should walk on for us and we'd like to take a look at you. So I accepted that invitation and I, you know, agreed and I declared that I was going to go to Cal Poly. And then right before I went there, that head coach that I had spoken with got hired somewhere else. He got mm-hmm. hired in the NFL as, a, as an assistant coach and they hired a new coach at Cal Poly, this old crotchety, curmudgeonly old, you know, local football coach guy. And when I went down there with my dad for a visit, um, kind of the orientation, I went and introduced myself to this guy and told him I had talked to their previous coach. And he said, you know, we'd be happy to have you walk on. And this coach took a look at me and he said, 
you know what? I don't know if we have any room this year for you. You should just come here, go to school, and then try out at the end of your sophomore, or I'm sorry, at the end of your freshman year, after you right. get acclimated to the school. <laughs> so I went to Cal Poly thinking I was going to play football and, and, and didn't play football that freshman year. Uh, joined a fraternity, partied a lot, you know, yeah. didn't go to class too much. Was having a good college experience, but right. something was missing. So at the end of that freshman year, I, I tried out for the football team, and I got cut. <laughs> uh, that same coach who told me, wait another year, after spring ball told me, you're, you're too sm- slow to play wide receiver. You're too small to play tight end. We still don't have a spot for you on the team. So right. I was devastated. And I went back there my sophomore year. Um, actually, I went home for summer between freshman and sophomore year. Yeah. And I had this amazing summer with my friends from back home. Um, and then I, at the very end of my, that summer, a friend of mine, the, one of these friends that I spent all summer with, committed suicide mm-hmm. and uh, caught us all completely off guard. We were blown away by what had happened. We were trying to pick up the pieces and and move on with our lives. A couple of weeks later, I had to go back to school. So I was there. I was as a sophomore, really, really empty inside feeling this void of this friendship that was lost, feeling this emptiness that I wasn't competing or felt no purpose in my life. And uh, I started talking to my high school football coach about that. And he suggested, Hey, why don't, why don't you take a look at a junior college or Menlo College. I hadn't even heard of Menlo College at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's right up the street. It was 30, 40 minutes from where I grew up in San Jose. It's right down the street from Stanford. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't heard about it. And once I started doing some research, it was kind of like the stars were aligning and fate was kind of showing itself. And I made the acquaintance of the coaches there and went for a trip there. And then I decided to transfer. And uh, it was the best decision I ever made. I ended up really finding myself there, not just on a football field, but as a writer, I got to write for the school newspaper there, mm-hmm. the Menlo Oak. And I had no aspiration of doing that at Cal Poly, but I got to Menlo with 500 students at the school, 100 guys on our football team. And it was this intimate feel there where I really got to experiment with things that I cared about. Um, I actually did some radio stuff there as well. So all the things that I do now or have done professionally, I did there at Menlo College and was kind of given free reign to try that. We had um, ex-NFL coaches, I'm sorry, ex-NFL players coaching us there. And my childhood hero, Bill Walsh, his son was the athletic director there. And it's just so happened Bill would come to the games and stand in the end zone. And, you know, I had some big games in front of him and that got the ball rolling for me. And uh, so when I was done with Menlo, when my, when my, uh, when I graduated from Menlo College, I was signed to the 49ers, and uh, that started my NFL career. So you were you were a walk-on 49ers as well, right? And then, well, technically, there's no such thing as a walk-on. Um, well, uh, it's undrafted. Uh, undrafted free, free agent. Free agent. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's right. seven rounds in an NFL draft, and then right. once those seven rounds are up, there's still a bunch of guys out there that are going to get signed to a team. Right. Sometimes it's a benefit to you if you don't get drafted because, like, you know, if you get drafted in the seventh round, for example, whatever team drafts you, you're going to that team. You don't have a right. choice. But if you don't get drafted, but there's still, say, three or four teams that are interested in you, you can decide which team you want to go to based right. on what's the most favorable destination for you, whether it's location or you look at the roster, the best chance you have of making the team or whatever. I had two teams that were interested in me, the Ravens and the Niners. I, of course, chose the Niners because <laughs> it was down the street, my childhood right. hero. We're up there. So, um, yeah, I was signed to the Niners as a free agent. Yeah. And then you played – did you ever play for the Niners or did you go to Denver right away? Yeah, so it was kind of weird. Like, I got there, 
so the so the draft happens in April, um, and I signed you know two hours after the draft was over, and that that started the off season conditioning program, and then mini camps, which is just two or three day kind of short camps practices, right? Um, and I went through that in April, May, June, July, and training camp was in August. Now to get on the team at all, once you once you get drafted or you get signed, you have to go through physicals. And I had, you know, they have extensive physicals and they go through your injury history. And if they mm-hmm. catch anything that's wrong with you already on the way in, if it's bad enough, they make you sign a waiver for that specific injury. So that if mm-hmm. you get hurt again, they can cut you. They don't have to fix that because it was bad when you got there. So I had this shoulder problem. I had dislocated it three or four times in college and had elected not to have surgery on it because I was afraid that the length of time it would take to rehab it would derail my ability to get on an NFL team. So I just took the chance to, to try to tough it out and rehab it and hope that it held up. Well, they, they found that in the physical, um, I had to sign a waiver for it. And then sure enough, second week of training camp, I dislocated that shoulder. So it, it ended up bothering me, you know, the rest of training camp, I toughed it out. But at the end of training camp, the head coach said, look, Nate, we'd love to keep you around on practice squad, but you're injured, you know, and if you're not, if you're injured there, you're kind of no good to us. So they cut me, but they did tell me if you get surgery and you get it fixed and it's healthy, we'll sign you back next season. So I went back and lived at home with my mom and dad that season, which was 2002 had surgery um, on my own insurance and rehabbed it, you know, my, on my own. And then they kept their word and did sign me back at the end of that, or um, at the beginning of the next season. And I went through that whole process again with them, the whole off season, the whole mini camps and all that. But by then there was a new coach there. The head coach that was there the previous year was gone. We had a new head coach. He didn't really know me from a can of paint. Bill Walsh right. was still there as a, as a, as an advisor. Right. And so as training camp was going in 2003, it was in the middle of training camp, the way it was shaping out, I was way down on the depth chart and Bill Walsh kind of made a few calls on my behalf and uh, got me out of there. So I was on my way out to practice one day, had my helmet in my hand. I was all taped up, ready to go practice, get a tap on the shoulder. They said, Hey, Bill wants to talk to you upstairs. And uh, I went upstairs and he told me to sit down. He said, Nate, we've traded you to Denver. Your flight leaves in three hours. Good luck. And uh, I was on a plane a couple hours later. And the next morning I was practicing with the Broncos. So I had a new locker, a new helmet, new jersey and all that. So that that started my tenure with the Broncos. And, and as you can imagine, it was pretty well, surprising, but also kind of traumatic to get pulled out of what I thought was like my opportunity to play for right. my hometown team, right? And by your but, childhood hero, too. Yeah, my childhood yeah. heroes, yeah. yeah. And But ultimately, like, it was the best possible thing that could have happened for me. I mean, I wouldn't have made the team with the 49ers, but I ended up in a scenario where I had a coach that did appreciate what I did and uh, gave me a chance to make the team, and I ended up playing six seasons in Denver. Who, who was the quarterback for, uh, for Denver at that time? Jake Plummer. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Shanahan was the coach or? Yep. Mike Shanahan, Mike Shanahan. was a coach and, and he kind of had a connection with Bill Walsh because he had kind of studied under that Bill Walsh coaching tree. Yep. He had, he had been the offensive coordinator of the 49ers um, after Bill Walsh had left, but still it was this trickle down thing where, you know, they ran the same offense and, and all these coaches kind of adapt, uh, adopted these philosophies of Bill Walsh and became 
you know, um, purveyors of his system and, 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 and therefore appreciated his advice when it came to players because they kind of all like the same type of players. So when you played, uh, I read a list of injuries that you suffered. Uh, and uh, <laughs> when you, what was, was there one single injury that you were like, man, I don't know if I can go back after this. I'm always curious because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a professional athlete. Uh, John might be, but I'm not. Uh, oh yeah. So, I am. No, I am. Yeah. You can well, tell that John, like John is, yeah. yeah, I mean, we yeah, both obviously you. have those kind of physiques. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I, I just, uh, I know that, you know, playing basketball, I was, I was, I'm the old head. I tried to play basketball with a bunch of young kids and I got, <laughs> I'll get elbowed in the eye and I get a black eye and bloody nose. I'm like, I don't think I'm cut out to still play basketball with these kids. And I can, I read your injuries and I'm like, holy shit. Like some of these are pretty traumatic. Was there ever one that were like, I don't know if after the rehab, if I ever want to do this again. You know, it's kind of sick, um, but no, I never what felt like this is the I, this is the one I can't come back from. It was always like just another speed bump. This is this is part of it. It was from a very young age, like th these football injuries start happening and happening, and you see that the way to succeed in football is to push through them. Um, mm. And if you get hurt you rehab it, you come back stronger and you are constantly, if you're not getting hurt, you're constantly watching guys drop around you. Like I, I think about this one play when I was in high school that kind of personifies that I was playing safety. Um, we were scrimmaging a team in San Jose called Overfelt and um, their quarterback who was this, who was this really talented athlete. The Samoan guy was running with a ball. He, he juked a bunch of guys. He came through the line of scrimmage. He got held up by one of our guys around his legs. He spun to get out of it, and he, and he ran right into our linebacker. And our linebacker hit him right in the face. His face mat, his his chin strap popped off. His face mask pushed through his lip and split his lip from his nose down to his lip, Oof. open down to his teeth and his gums. Mm. And he was laying on his back, blood coming out of his face, spitting out chunks of flesh. I was standing over him, and I was watching this happen. And um, I took a step back and people rushed in. The medical people rushed in. The ambulance came out on the field. They put him in a gurney. They took him away. And then they blew the whistle and we kept playing. Yeah. And it, it was a couple plays where we were all looking around at each other like, okay, I guess, I guess this is how it goes. And that's the kind of ethos that is encouraged. It, the right. show must go on. If you're at practice and a guy gets cracked and he's laid out on the, on the practice field and cannot physically move, the coach says, let's move it down 20 yards, move it down 20 yards yeah. so we can keep practicing. Wow. And, and so that was kind of the way it went. And you just push and push and push. And that long list of injuries gets longer yeah. and longer. But there was a, an empowering feeling about, about overcoming that, about watching your body heal, about being down in the tank and feeling like shit for, you know, a couple of days or a week, but watching your body start to heal. And then, you, you know, there's a lot of self-talk that goes on. Yeah. A lot of looking in the mirror and, and 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 telling yourself you got this, you got this, you got this, and by by God it works, and you get stronger and you get back yeah. on the field, and then you know you're buoyed by that. So even at the end, even when my career was over and like nobody wanted me, I still was like I'm I'm ready to go. Who's yeah, sign it's me? so interesting. You know? I mean, there's probably a lot of players like you in the NFL because people you know outside of the NFL can't imagine that people would subject themselves to that kind of pain and torture, even though the you know the money can be good, etc. Right. Do you think there's like almost like an addiction to the 
to the thrill of like, you know, not knowing what's going to happen to you. And then maybe the thrill of, you know, getting injured, then overcoming the injury. Like it, it, it seems like a lot of people in the NFL must share some sort of psychological <laughs> trait, not to make you be a shrink here for a minute, but I'm curious what it is that makes, that makes NFL players, you know, keep going back and doing it, even despite seeing people spitting up flesh and, you know, <laughs> you know, knowing that people get paralyzed and get brain injuries yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this life that you're on the razor's edge, and it's like the adrenaline is unmatchable. Um, the money, like you said, the the adulation, the yeah. everywhere you go, it's a, it's a thing. You know, you're you're um, you get police escorts through the town. You go right up onto the tarmac. You get onto the airplane. You land at the airport. You, you land right next to buses. You get on the buses, and there's police escorts through the city, velvet ropes into their hotel room, and then you get out there on the field and you got 75,000 people screaming. I mean, the adrenaline that you feel when you're on the football field, there is no pain out there. I mean, you don't yeah. feel pain. And so the pain comes tomorrow. The pain comes after the adrenaline dies down. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of it is about the way you're treated and the way you identify um, as a football player. Like my identity was so wrapped up in being a football player that, I couldn't picture the future. I couldn't picture life without it, even though I knew instinctively life would go on after it. You can't put yourself in the future because if you do that, you're going to, you're going to get trampled on the field. It's like, you really got to believe that you are a superhero or else you will get smashed. And so that's what you see when you look out there, all these guys believe they're superhuman and there is some weird kind of thing that happens from the energy of the crowd. And I feel like, you know, they're imbued with this sort of mom momentary armor where you're, where you, you can withstand these types of hits on the football field that you could never withstand if you were just walking down the street, right. you know, yeah. if you were like walking the down the street, Hulk. yeah, yeah, yeah. If I was <laughs> walking down the street and some guy hit me like that, right. probably break a lot of bones. I'd be in the right. hospital, but for whatever reason, you're, you're, you're so you're charged up. Yeah. yeah, charged up that you can handle that. Like, you see guys jump as high as they can and fall flat on their backs and just pop right up. Yeah. Like, what would happen to you guys right now if you just stood up right now from your seat, jumped up in the air, and landed parallel on your back? Well, I think just standing up. Uh, yeah, just standing up, jumping, I might throw up probably my back. Be a like, oh, my back. Exactly. And so, me too now. I mean, I, I do the same stuff now that I'm not playing football anymore. My body's changed. And, you know, the way I recover from yeah. aches and pains, it's all, it's all different. So, um, there's just something about the energy in that industry and, and surrounding it that, that makes you feel like, you know, this yeah. is it. I'm willing to die for this. It's probably yeah. the same thing that in people in combat, you know, talk about that. that well, that's why I was going to, I was going to yeah. say that, you know, from, from the NFL players or ex NFL players that I've uh, looked at their genetic predispositions, there are a couple genetic predispositions they have in common. There's a gene called COMT, C-O-M-T, and they, they call that the, the warrior warrior gene and veterans and professional athletes, they tend to be more obviously on the warrior side. So, like, I've had conversations with, uh, with uh, like, football players that were saying, oh, you know, 300-pound linemen are running at me. Everything's in slow motion. I'm in, in flow. Doesn't even feel like anything. There's no fear, none of that stuff, no stress, no anxiety, uh, because I've been practicing. I know I'm in my element. Well, I'm home, and, uh, you know, the, the birds are chirping, the window is open. I start feeling anxiety. There's something that's wrong because it's too quiet. I need yeah. that. And that, that, that is a genetic predisposition that I saw. So 
speaking of it, it's a good segue. And I really think there's overcoming adversity is, is a common theme to, in your life from, you know, uh, walking onto the field and not getting drafted and all the, the and overcoming injuries. But uh, one of the things I didn't talk about in the intro was you're also known uh, pretty widely as a cannabis activist. So if you can talk about uh, you know, some of the injuries that you've had and what you had to endure uh, with traditional, I guess, uh, ways to overcome those uh, through your football career after and, and how you found cannabis as, uh, you know, part of your healing uh, process. Yeah, so for, I think, for some of the reasons you just mentioned about that that warrior gene or, or that proclivity to be into the fire, you know, yeah. um, and anxiety when you're not, when you're when it's quiet, I, I was always kind of an anxious kid, you know, I wanted, I wanted action and I wanted to be uh, moving around. And so when I did, I, you know, I got in trouble a lot in class as a kid. And, and for that reason, when I did discover cannabis in high school, it really had a kind of middling effect on me. You know, some people say they get, they get high and they, whatever, for me, it was, right. it was kind of a, it brought me, it brought me down in a way. Yeah. And it leveled you out, leveled right. you, right. Right. It brought me into a kind of a more uh, more manageable state of idleness, or or just it allowed me to calm down. And so that was my first kind of realization that it was it, it just it worked with my body. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I was still a very dedicated athlete, and uh, th- those couple of years in college when I wasn't playing football, I was probably consuming you know a little more than I should have been. But um, but then I when I when my football career started to blossom again i you know put it kind of in the back in the background and focused on football and of course as i got to the nfl there wasn't a lot of cannabis around for me um it was i was just the obedient soldier who was going to do everything i could to stay where i was uh, on an nfl roster i wasn't going to risk uh getting caught doing anything stupid or you know putting anything in my body that i was going to get tested for or anything like that. So what I would do is just take the pills that I was given. And that, that meant, you know, and, and based on those, that long list of injuries that you were talking about, that meant a lot of pills. Every time you get hurt in the NFL, they give you a bottle of pills. And it's not even a necessarily an injury that will make you miss time. Just anytime you go into the training room to get something worked on, even if you're not missing practice time, they're handing you large bottles of, anti-inflammatories first and foremost you know the pain pills come later um some guys like those more than others i never really loved them i i i didn't like them um but the anti-inflammatories were just constant and so that was you know my first couple of years in the nfl didn't really dabble in cannabis much as far as injury recovery stuff i took the pills they gave me um but um so i played six years in the nfl and really it was like year three or four that i started kind of tinkering with my own recovery process after significant injuries like mm-hmm. three out of my six seasons in the nfl ended on injured reserve meaning i had an injury that was significant enough to end my season completely so that's when i think cannabis is the most effective for for football players is when they're not doing anything anyway they're going to be recovering they're not practicing they're right. going to be staying at home resting and instead of having a big bottle of vicodin and a big bottle of you know some powerful anti-inflammatory they consume a little bit of cannabis because, you know, a little bit of cannabis goes a long way. You don't sure. need a lot of it. You know, at least I didn't. And I still right. don't. And so it was during the fourth, fifth, sixth years of my NFL career where 
I had a couple injuries, one in particular, my groin popped off the bone. That's and what I was going to say. I was hoping you would say that's the one that made me think I may not want to come back because when well, I read about the groin thing, I was just like, man, I don't know after that. Well, it was ugly, man. I mean, it, it was, it, it, it was ugly figuratively and literally it was ugly. My groin swelled up like a watermelon. I mean, uh. it pushed my genitals somewhere. I couldn't even find them. They were oh gone. Okay. They were gone. And, and it was this black and blue watermelon uh, stuff down my pants. Oh. And so, yeah, Thank I had a week or image. so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a week or so where I thought that, where I was like, what am I doing? This is my life. You know, I, I couldn't go to the, like going to the bathroom. Everything works like, all right now. Just want to make sure. Yeah. Everything's all great. Functional. The, the human body is very resilient. <laughs> really is. Yeah, the watermelon. You are living proof. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, and then, so, but that was an injury in which I I really did lean on the cannabis. And I, and I was at that point, I was, it was my fifth year and I was, and I was really done taking all those pills. And so that injury was really showed me the the efficacy of it as, as as a recovery tool because I healed incredibly fast from that one. I mean, way ahead of schedule. Like I got hurt in week five, I think of the season, they put me on injured reserve. They said, there's no way this is going to heal fast enough to put you back on the field this season. Mm -hmm. But within a month and a half or two months, I was, I was good. I felt literally a hundred percent in two months, which put me, you know, four games left in the season, but my season was over, but it really got me starting to think about this because I slept better. The swelling was was pretty manageable after the initial swelling went down. My mind was clearer. Uh, my my moods were better. I was more optimistic. And really, that's what the pills to me do. They make me pessimistic. If I take uh, if I take you know those those opioids, I get down in a really dark right. place. Right. And uh, and the cannabis didn't do that for me. Now, one thing I also found out after I stopped playing, and I had nothing going on, was that. While cannabis can be a really good thing when you got something going on, it can be a bad thing when you got nothing going on. Mm-hmm. If you have nothing to get up for or nothing to prepare for, it's really easy to kind of sink down into it. And, you know, I, when I left the NFL a couple of years later, I had money in the bank. Um, I had nothing but time. I had a long list of injuries to deal with. And I had a proclivity to medicate. And so... Right. I, you know, had to go and see the other end of that in, in a place where cannabis can, too much cannabis can be a bad thing. So sure. it, it was tinkering with this reality that to kind of gave me the perspective I have now. Yeah, I think it's a great point that you made because, and also, you know, that's what we do. My company does this looking at uh, DNAs, uh, you know, most of our audience knows, but, you know, talking about this COM-T gene, this, uh, if you are the warrior side of it, you're, you're great when things are going, when it's calm, you, sometimes it triggers other depressive uh, feelings, like some depressive moods, other uh, depressed uh, predispositions to depressive feelings. And if you're consuming cannabis and you're consuming you know, the, the, I'll call it the wrong type of cannabis and the wrong amount, the dose of it, it can actually help to spiral you down into a depressive uh, mood. So some people um, definitely have a proclivity to that, as, as you mentioned. So I'm glad you brought that up, that it's not, it's a drug. You got to set in setting, being aware of what's, uh, you know, personal to you and understanding what's right for you. So uh, everybody needs to understand that this is not just like a one size fits all kind of thing. So, right. Yeah, and uh, and you know, there's been a big push. There, there's there's a handful of us who were 
kind of instrumental in trying to talk about this and get the NFL to understand it. And they have changed their policy and Mm -hmm. it is more accepted now in the NFL, but it's also kind of like, they don't have that information that you're just talking about, you know? And so now there's like this, Oh, it's good. No, there's no such thing as too much cannabis. Go ahead, have as much as you want. And that's not, that's not, that's not a good philosophy either. So it's education that really these guys really need more so after they're done playing because the demands of the job kind of keep any uh, overuse in check just because you got to be on point. You can't be, you can't be late. You got to know your plays. You got to be with it out on the field. You got to be a good teammate. You got to be doing everything right. And so if you're, you know, numbing your mind with too much cannabis, you're not going to be able to do that. But it's really when guys leave the NFL, like I said, they have some money. They have nothing but time, no itinerary, no one telling them what to do. And really no, no medical personnel around them. Like when I was a, when I was a player, literally you go to work, you are surrounded by medical personnel watching you. Doctors, Mm. physicians, gurus, they would call them of all sorts, watching you to wait to see what happens. And then they rush in and help you heal immediately. Whatever happens, they're on it like a team. And then all of a sudden you go out into the world and that whole team disappears and you still have all those problems with your body. And so that's when the, the bad stuff can start happening. Yeah, it's got it, it, the NFL and all the sports leagues. They they need to standardize and everybody look in their genetic profile, look in their blueprint, so they know exactly what's right for those individuals. They do that on the nutrition side. Why wouldn't they do that through your overall uh, endocannabinoid system? It just makes no sense. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is, you wrote for the New York Times too, right? How how did you get that gig? I'm just curious. So these were because that's what John. That's what that's uh, that's John's my thing. world. But uh, no, oh, I'm, cool. yeah, I'm a journalist. But but uh, no, and you've also written a bunch of books, which is really cool. Yeah. So well, I, yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask about the book because yeah. I, I have a, I have a specific question about that uh, that, that will transition. But I'm curious. Well, the about... the the articles, the New York Times stuff. Now I, I was just freelance stuff, so I wasn't right, an employee right. or anything. But really, what happened was when I played for the Broncos in 2005, I believe it was, a journalist by the name of Stefan Fatsis, who has written a, a couple books. Um, his most famous book is called Word Freak. It's about the Scrabble world. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he came into our locker room as a journalist to write a story. Of, um, um, have you heard of Paper Paper Lions? Or Paper Tigers? No, Paper Lions. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a book written by George Plimpton back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. he kind of entrenched himself into the Lions training camp as, right, a, right, as right. a quarterback and yep. wrote about what that was like. So Stefan was trying to do a redo of that but as a kicker. So he came into the Broncos training camp as a kicker. This was in 2005. We became friends just because like I had a writer's sensibility. I wrote for my school newspaper. Right. I wrote an online journal for the Broncos website when I went to NFL Europe in 2004. So I kind of had the mind of a writer and Stefan and I became friends. So his book ended up coming out. It did pretty well. And then after I was done playing, he encouraged me to start writing. And so he had a lot of connections and I and I started just writing these freelance articles, the 800-word, 1,000-word pieces about what it was like, what it's like in the NFL for the average player, mm-hmm. not Peyton Manning or Tom Brady, but the guy who's just trying to stick around, the guy right, who's man. going through those injuries, the guy who's got a watermelon in his crotch, you know, yeah. <laughs> that type of stuff. And I think the article, you know, I started writing for this website called Deadspin, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. doing a, a good amount of stuff for that. And then they, they gave me a lot of freedom, so I wrote a bunch of articles for them. But the, the New York Times stuff was about concussion. So this mm-hmm. was when the concussion stuff was first yep. coming out, and I was able to offer some unique perspectives on that. So after I had 15 or 20 of these articles under my belt, 
I started getting contacted by literary agents and publishers and that got the ball rolling and I flew out to New York and met my agent for the first time at 10 a.m. And then at, at, at 11.30, we were pitching an idea for a book at, at Crown. And then we went to St. Martin's. And then the next day was Penguin and HarperCollins. I ended up signing a, a contract with HarperCollins and going back to Denver with a book deal and uh, and wrote that book, Slow Getting Up. That came right. Out yeah. And that was without even having a proposal, right? That's just yeah. That's yeah, pretty no awesome. proposal, which is, yeah, r- very rare. Um, I had <laughs> but you're you, of, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. I had a unique perspective on uh, on an industry that people didn't really understand and had never had explained in the way I was doing it. Right. Um, and uh, you know, they also were able to see after fifteen or twenty articles what I was about, my style, and, and whatnot. Right. So, so yeah, it was pretty lucky for me to be able to get that without a proposal. Writers, as you know, I mean, slave over these proposals. They're thirty page. I, I help plus people documents. write them a lot. Yeah. No. Oh, I do don't. you? Yeah, they're hard. Yeah. They're really yeah. hard, but I mean, there's a formula to it, but it is hard. I mean, you know, it's been very impressive that you've written, aside from just getting a book deal, to actually write a book. And you did this without help of a ghostwriter, right? You just kind of did it yourself. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I just had, you know, a good editor who I really trusted and, and vibed with a lot, um, a guy that I connected with on and off the, or yeah. on and off the field, but on and off the page. You know, he was a, he was a good guy. He's still a friend of mine. So That's his name's awesome. David Hershey. Yeah. Yeah, cool. it, it's it, I, I can attest because I, I just got done writing my first book, which I didn't write. I spoke and I had and then my co-writer described the scribe to your technique. That's what they call <laughs> whatever, it. Whatever, whatever you yeah, call it. Call whatever the, the technical terminology is, I don't know. <laughs> That's the term just, now. That's awesome. Transcribe it and in, get the, in that tone. light, what do you feel about when people say they they're they read a book when they listen to a book on tape. Have you ever heard people say that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to do that myself That's every once in a while. I catch myself because I don't read books anymore. I just listen to Audible right. the entire time. Yeah, but I think it's going to be a big difference because the new style of Audible books with the – so like Malcolm Gladwell's last book, he has clips of like specific interviews and audio clips. You can't put that in a regular book. Yeah, so right. to have the interactive experience of listening to a book is yeah. much different now than it is. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I still think that. if you're a writer, you have to read. Um, yeah. You know, I do both. I have to read a lot for my job. So I can't yeah. just be, re- I fall asleep now. I've gotten so old where I start falling asleep when I read books now. So I like to listen <laughs> to books while I'm taking my, my daily walk. Um but uh, but I do think when you're I tell writers if there's any aspiring writers listening that you need to read to be able to write um, it does help yeah. I mean I can tell I can just tell the sharpness of my my own writing skills improves when I'm reading and, it, and it's right. just like you know it could be 30 minutes an hour in the morning sure. just yeah. to get your mind working right. that way um, I can really tell the difference when I'm reading versus not. Right, exactly. Yeah, my, my ADD kicks in, and uh, as John was saying, I either fall asleep if I keep reading the same book or I get to pick up. Like, so I have to read like three books at the same time. I can't just read one because yeah. I have to pick up one and shift and read another and yeah. read another, and that's how I kind of stay. I think a lot of people do that these days, too, because yeah. we're just getting so many ideas in our many. heads all the yeah. time. I mean, you look at your phone and you scroll. It's yeah. like you got 10, 15, 20 different ideas about 20 different things coming at you, so your brain's full of them. Yeah. So I have a question. I think I read um, uh, some excerpts from your one of your books. Maybe it was the slowly uh, slow getting up. Uh, is there it's something called like football or NFL groupies? Do they exist? Of course they do. <laughs> I mean, there's cannabis groupies. You know that there are. I have no idea what you're met. talking about. <laughs> I haven't met any of them yet. <laughs> there's literary groupies too. Yeah, man. I'm sure. I mean, there are groupies. But, um, 
<laughs> but yeah, football, there are, there are quite a bit, quite a lot. Uh, you yeah. find them pretty much everywhere you go. Actually, no, they find you wherever you go. Like there are certain bars that we would go to and right. they would know that we would be there. You know, there are people who know where we're going to be on, on our path on the road. There are people waiting for us at the hotel, um, on away games, mm-hmm. things of that nature. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's that type of job. It's so much in the spotlight. It's so idolized. It's right. so mythologized, you know, that, People want to be a part of it, um, and people will overlook a lot of character flaws of athletes in order to be a part of it. Creates a lot of volatile relationships. Not all of them work out. Most of sure. them don't. Yep. So, um, but yeah, lots of groupies. There's other names for them as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll call them groupies for yeah. football for the time lives. being. Everybody knows. They they know. I, I'm just I'm just curious if if there is like a group like I'm familiar with groupies. I don't even know if they're cannabis uh, industry groupies. If they are, I haven't really met uh, too many of them. But in the music industry, there's obviously, you know, groupies. They, and they follow bands everywhere they go. And it's like oh, the yeah. same people. I, I remember I went to see Guns N' Roses, like, when they got back together after not playing for whatever many years. And there was these women there that had the bleach blonde hair, had a tease, were wearing the same jacket they probably wore back in the day, but it barely fit anymore. And they're still wearing their like uh, their their crop top, but the the belly is not as flat as it used to be. So <laughs> the girls that were following the group from from like you know state to state and country to country and following around everywhere. I was wondering if uh, like the groupies are specific to the location <laughs> or. All year round, where, where you just want to live vicariously through Nate. <laughs> I do want to live vicariously through this period of his life. Are just not cutting it. What were the <laughs> yeah? What were the groupies like in Miami as opposed well, to the groupies in St. Louis? <laughs> they'll follow you around, but but the team, your team, makes it very very difficult for them to make contact with you. Like on a road trip, okay? Like you would think, yeah, for baseball and basketball, it's different because you're kind of traveling so much and you're there for a couple nights. In yeah. football, you play eight away games a year. That's it. So you because right. you play sixteen games, so you got eight road trips, ten if you count preseason. But those are only one night trips. You leave the night before the game or the day before the game. So we'd fly, we'd fly out in the afternoon, so that we'd arrive around three thirty or four p.m. Mm-hmm. We'd get on the bus and get to the hotel, check into the hotel. We'd have dinner at seven. So you got about two and a half or three hours of free time right there. But it's not just about that small window of free time. There's security um, at every exit on your floor. We're confined to one or two floors at the hotel. There's security on every exit. They don't let any non-football players on those floors, and they don't let anyone into your rooms. You can't have visitors in your room. So if you do want to uh, fructify that desire at a hotel in Miami, for example, you're going to have to get your own hotel room at that hotel on a different floor, maybe under a different name, and you're going to have to sneak off your floor if it's after curfew. So we got that two or three hour window from four to seven. We have dinner at seven. We have meetings, bunch of meetings the night before a game. The meetings end around 9.15. Then your bed checks at 11.15. So you got two hours there. So if you can handle your business in the two or three hour window before dinner or the two hour window after meetings, great. Otherwise you're gonna have to try to sneak off the floor. Some security offers are susceptible to bribery. Some are not, Um, but either way you wake up in the morning with a wake up call. You don't play the game, and you don't go back to the hotel. You go straight to the airport. You get on the plane and come home. So the the options are fairly limited on the road. So it's all about the off season, but then that's hard that's because right. then you've got your, you know, if you're married or whatever. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, um, does that so really? The, the advice is, is there... don't, don't be married. Yeah, you know, don't be married if you're going to be in the NFL. NFL. That's exactly. Crazy. Yeah. And even on our home games, we would stay in hotels the night before the game. Like that whole that whole protocol would apply for home games as well because the coaches didn't want us kind of bogged down with distractions at home. And and that would often happen. You know, you get a lot of family and friends coming to town for a game. They're all staying at your house. They mm-hmm. all want your attention. It was nice to be able to get away from that, go to the hotel, get a good night's sleep in your own room and get ready to play a game. So I had an, another question from uh, an activism standpoint. So you were, you were or are currently involved in Athletes for Care, right? Yeah. Uh, so it, so that is an organization that you guys started uh, to be able to uh, talk about, you know, cannabis uh, for, for athletes and the athletes that are uh, retired athletes as well. Uh, so are, are you still involved in that organization? How did you get involved uh, in, in the beginning? Yeah, so Athletes for Care was kind of spawned from a group of athletes who started just kind of being invited to these cannabis conferences and mm-hmm. seminars right. and stuff to share our story. And it, it, for me, it happened when I wrote that first book. There was like right. two paragraphs in that book about cannabis, how I preferred mm-hmm. it to the pills, just what I was telling you about earlier. Well, the book came out. I thought everyone was going to love all these other ideas in the book. The one mm. thing everyone wanted to talk about was the weed, you know? It yeah. was like, tell us more about that, man. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel sent Andrea Kramer to my house in Denver to do a piece on cannabis in, in yeah. football. And so I was uh, very forthright and honest with her about it. And and after that came the flood of, of cannabis folks. And it, that after that, I got kind of pulled into this cannabis advocacy role. Yeah. Um, it happened really fast. Next thing I know, I'm you know up on stage with guys like Kyle Turley and Ricky Williams and Riley. Cote yeah. and Evan Britton and those guys. And um, it was that group of guys who was, we started getting flown around the country to do these gigs, but no one would pay us. <laughs> right. And they, they would charge admission to these things and people were oh, in yeah. the audience. They're obviously getting paid from these people, but they're not paying us. And so I was like, yeah. well, why aren't we getting money here? Um, and so we kind of started talking about that aspect of it. But then we started talking about some broader philosophies and ways that we could create an organization that could help athletes just speak their truth, you know, and, and, yeah. and help current athletes and destigmatize this plant and help them understand concussions better and the dangers of pills and all that. So we started this nonprofit called Athletes for Care um, to do just that. It's a really big organization now. I think we got like 250 or 300 athletes. Yeah. I had to, I kind of stepped away from the cannabis game a little bit about mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, just because it, it can't, it became like, um, so cannabis has always been very, personal for me right and personal right. it's been a secret i've right. kept it a secret so and i liked it that way you know mm-hmm. i liked having it that be a part of my life but not having people know and right. just going about my life but that pulled me into this discussion where it was always about the cannabis about the cannabis and people start and it started to be this celebrity cannabis thing and you know it was no longer about how this plant can help you, but it was about the people talking about how this plant can help you and everyone right. wanted to start their own brand. And there was just kind of like, I started to feel a little yucky with it and had a falling out with a couple of, you know, people and just misunderstandings and disagreements. And I was just wanted to back away from it because it wasn't feeling, it wasn't mm-hmm. feeling good for me anymore. I still uh, have a personal relationship with the plant. But right. um, and now I'm starting to creep back into athletes for care a little bit, just because right. I've had some time away and feel feel good about that. But so, um, yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you're 
if you're comfortable discussing this or not, and if you're not, then just tell me to shut up and don't ask anymore. But uh, I had the privilege of being on your old uh, podcast. Uh, uh, was it Caveman Poet Society? It was a, what it started it was off called? as the Mindful Warrior. Yes, and, the Mindful and, Warrior and, was first, and right. we got a we got a cease and desist letter from this these people who own that trademark and we're like you can't call it that we have a company called mindful warrior and so we're like all right that's Uh, annoying yeah it was super annoying so we renamed it caveman poet society that's right so i I mean i I, it was it was great and uh, you know it was you and and evan uh were the co-hosts and then uh i i'm still friendly with uh with evan he was on our show and i ran into him not too long ago we were hiking uh together and uh, him and his brother as well. And uh, I kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, you're coming on the show and he was like, oh, you know, well, maybe that was one of those falling outs that you mentioned. Uh, so I, I said I would offer an olive branch <laughs> and say if there is a, a way that we can get you guys together. Because I don't know, there was I really liked your energy. So I don't know what happened. And you don't have to talk about it in, in any detail. But is there an option that exists for a reconciliation? <laughs> well, it wouldn't be on the air. That's for sure. It would have to be. Oh, too bad. I, have, I have him on the wait. I have him in the waiting room right here. Yeah, just he, about to bring him. Uh, he's right in, yeah, here he Come is. On. Uh, Zoom no. blast. No, Look, I, mean, would, was, I, would, I didn't mean it would be like uh, part of the yeah, show. I just, no. I just meant like because uh, I, I like, I like you guys uh, individually, and I thought you were cool together. So there's a way that I can offer that as an olive branch because he's. Uh, uh, he's open and willing to have that discussion. I don't want to speak for him. How I'm about a weed brand? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. It's it, it he's was fine. Uh, it was there was a lot of there was a lot of feelings involved in that, and and I and it could be a cautionary tale for you guys because it started as a disagreement with the podcast. Uh-huh. It was the direction of our podcast and the work we had done on that podcast. And as you know, Len, you came on a couple of times. We yeah. we were working really hard on that podcast. Yeah, um, sure. Put a lot of time, put a lot of money in it. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I turned around and then that podcast was over. And the two guys I was doing the podcast with were now doing a new podcast with Mike Tyson, called it Hot Boxing, which was basically the same podcast we were doing. I was not asked to be a part of that podcast. So all the work we had done up to that point all the talks we shared, all the brotherhood, all that stuff started to feel a little bit empty when I saw what was what was happening right. to not just the podcast, but the friendship. Um, yeah. And so I haven't spoken to him in a couple of years. Um, right. So who knows what, what will happen there. But sometimes things go awry. And this weird podcast business, it's like there are no rules for it. You don't yeah. know who... Who does what and how? Who yeah, owns especially when you're doing it as a labor of love, and then it becomes a business. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so um, you know, I understand the allure of the Mike Tyson brand, right? But uh, to me, that wasn't the the way this thing should have gone, and uh, yeah, my partners decided otherwise. Um, I think time has shown that. I was right because those guys are no longer a part of that podcast, right? So look, you live, you learn. I, it was a very um, transformative moment in my life because, you know, those things happen and you have to go a different way. I right. all of a sudden had to not, I, I had to turn from this thing I had been working on for years. I mean, yeah. years I had put so much work into it. So um, 
So who knows? Who knows if there's any olive branch extension in the future, but um, that's what happened. Okay. That well, makes, uh, thanks for clearing it up and I yeah. appreciate it. And uh, if, uh, if this was a catalyst for that, great. If not, then, you know, not. And I just, uh, and by the way, I just think you do a great job with a podcast anyway. I thought you were a great host and you guys had this relationship that was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. So Thanks, man. Well, we, we loved having you on. It was always a really interesting conversation. Like, I learned a lot from you, and it kind of, you know, confirmed a lot of the feelings I was having about cannabis and why it worked with my body and all that. So, well, Thank you. Was, I, thought, uh, I thought I was boring people with uh, all the science you talk about. Yeah, no, appreciate that's science guy. <laughs> science right. guy, that's right. That's right. The science guy. That's, right. Yeah. You, you know how that started, John? So I was, uh, I was sitting, I was actually sitting next to Nate in, uh, uh, was it Jim Belushi's house we were at? Oh, that's right. that's yeah. Right. So it was, we were on the panel. It was the funniest thing. So we had, Jim McAlpine was, uh, was hosting his panel. I'm trying to remember who was on it. So I know Al Harrington was on it. Yeah. I think Lee I might Steinberg. have been there that day. That's what's crazy. Oh, were you there? Yeah. Was Lee there Steinberg was there. It was at uh, his house. Yeah. 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 It was Riley. I think Riley Cote yeah. was there. I'm trying to remember Before who I else. Oh, uh, what's his name? Um, the UFC uh, fighter. There was a hockey player. Frank, yeah, Frank, there was Frank Shamrock. No, well, Riley yeah. Cote was the hockey player, yeah. and us, and and you know everybody's uh, professional. Ralph Sampson was there. I remember that. Yeah. He was in the an audience. Accomplished. <laughs> everybody's an accomplished player. So Jim, it's easy to, for him to introduce everybody. He's like, you know, ex NFL player, ex uh, you know champion. This, and then he gets to me, and he's like, uh, uh, Len May, um, uh, sciencey guy. And that was yeah. it. And in the audience, they send me a box of T-shirts with a hashtag that's that sciencey guy. That's awesome. <laughs> On the show, so. I remember thinking you were a doctor being in the audience. I was just in the audience for that thing and thinking, oh, that guy's oh, you a guys doctor. didn't know each other back then? Well, I don't know no, how you found we, me. No. John no. John interviewed me uh once and that's and we became we we like spoke about stuff for I don't know 20 minutes or so, and then we talked about music, and that was all we ended up talking about. Yeah, so it was the, like fuck cannabis, let's just talk about hip hop. Yeah. <laughs> right. Love cannabis right. and right. music go together. Right, right. So if Neil deGrasse Tyson calls you uh Len, and want you to be a part of his podcast. Don't do it. Yeah, and Bill and, I, and don't and don't expect to get a cease and desist from Bill Nye. <laughs> you know, he'd be like, the "That's mine." Is, he is that is mine. Bill Nye is the science. Guy. I know he's not the science. I am the e science C guy. guy. Okay. That's a difference. That's okay. like that's like Vanilla Ice and, and Tween. You know, <laughs> right? Dun 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 dun. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. A little bit slightly, a little bit different. Yeah. All right, All right. Len, last so one, the ready? three questions. Yeah, the big three. Yes, I was, uh, I was uh, leading up to So these are the big three questions. So uh, get ready, uh, difficult uh, <laughs> stuff. So uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis, if you okay. remember. Hmm. First experience ever with cannabis uh, was summer before my freshman year of high school. Um, a friend of mine named Dustin had recently gone to L.A., and seen some family and came back with a little bit of cannabis. And uh, we were all intrigued and, you know, uh, a little scared, a little excited. We were hanging out, out near this creek. We went down into this creek area with this covered canopy area, but we didn't have anything to roll it with. So uh, we bummed a cigarette from some guy out there, hollowed out the cigarette, uh, filled it with just this tan bark is basically what it was. <laughs> Um, and, then, and then we went into this little enclosed bamboo area near the creek, and we lit it up, and, uh, 
I took a couple puffs and <laughs> felt nothing, you know, felt yeah. nothing. But Dustin, who was the experienced one, because he'd probably done it once or twice, was like coaching us through it and telling us what we should be feeling. And he had these sunglasses on and he's like, put on these sunglasses, man. It looks like you're in a movie. So I put on the sunglasses and tried to see that movie I was in. Didn't really um, see that. It right. took a couple more times, of course. Sciencey guy can explain why that yeah. is. But yeah. uh, that first time ever was was down by the river. Right. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, so, it w- but it wasn't a negative experience. You just oh, no. didn't really feel. No, uh, it didn't, yeah. didn't inhale. Maybe I've had very very few negative experiences. Yeah, it's always agreed with my body. Cool. The only right, negative so- experiences when you're like drinking as well, and then you decide that a, a couple big bong rips is, are going to be a good idea. How are you with I edibles? Mean, do you do edibles? How do you consume? You know what? You know what? Now that you mention it, negative. The edibles are negative. <laughs> negative, <laughs> negative on the edibles, man. I'm like a five milligram guy. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. maybe ten. You know, ten, and it's it's almost too much for me. Yeah, it's it's, it's yeah, really it's, strange. Yeah, poor metabolizer of THC through the digestive system. That's why. That's what happens to people. I, that's I, me. I, you know, I talked about this so many times before, and I still today. I got a call from a mother whose son, he had two experiences. The first one was uh, with alcohol and cannabis that I highly, highly uh, discourage people from mixing it. It's, it, it, it does the opposite of what you want it to do. And people can get really, really uh, you know, fucked up and, and pretty sick uh, doing that. And the second one was with an edible and he's had psychosis genes and things of that nature. So you have this liver conversion to 11 oxyhydroxide. And I'm just letting people know that it's a whole different way that you're going to experience it. It can be five to 50 times more powerful than THC alone than smoking it. Slower onset if you're a poor metabolism, uh, metabolizer, longer onset, and you can be high for several days. And, and if you have other genetic predisposition like psychosis or anything of that nature, that can be triggered and can be a very, very uncomfortable experience. Yeah. Although we should say that some companies have figured out ways to make edibles skip that liver, right? Wow. They're, they're, I, I don't want to do a commercial you, you for mean, them right you now. Mean, you mean like, the one that I actually do Nano. a podcast for? <laughs> yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. There's, there, are, there are brands with nano. I, there yeah, the has nano not technology. been, right. Uh, no, nano emulsification, for those of you that know, uh, like what they're doing is shrinking down the molecule to a very small size. So it, it gets metabolized uh, as it's coming through your first pass uh, before it hits your liver. That's the idea of it. Uh, there has been very, very, very little science behind right. the efficacy be, behind those. So I'm just letting people it's know. Anecdotal, uh, yeah. Do your research. It's it's an individual personal experience. And if you're a poor metabolizer, you know this about yourself. And the way you're going to know this about yourself is take a DNA test. Uh, the, the genus, uh, cytochrome, uh, they're called cytochrome P450, CYP, 2C9 is the one that produces the enzyme that metabolizes THC. If you're a poor metabolizer, I would highly suggest you avoid an edible. So, all right, sciencey guy. I like all those numbers. <laughs> I'm done with that. That was sciencey guy. All that right. was good. <laughs> all right, number <laughs> question number two. Uh, so John and I are both music guys. Is there a song or an album like this is your kind of go-to that you like, whether you're consuming cannabis or not? But this is sort of uh, your your genre or or album that you like to listen to. Well, when I first when I first really discovered cannabis, I was also really discovering hip hop music, and so I would say there, you know, Southern playlist, the Cadillac Music by Outkast, um, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, um, Creeping on a Come Up 
by Bone Thugs and Harmony. Also, East 1999 Eternal by Bone Thugs and Harmony. Yeah. Um, Midnight Marauders by Tribe Called Quest. Of course. Um, um, yeah. Wu Tang so, Forever, Wu Tang. All mean, the, all you're, the you're, you're singing, you're singing music to our ears right here. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Except um, for the Bone Thugs thing, I, I never. I like I just Bone went, Thugs and Harmony. I, I never got Thugs. it, man. I, I just like went to a party so before COVID. You know, they one of those. I think rugged one of the bones uh they released a cannabis brand so i got invited to whatever they're unveiling which was really odd because they had a they had a guy that was tattooing people at this party <laughs> not the most sanitary place to have yeah. that but uh seemed but like yeah, a good idea at the time yeah <laughs> and he performed and they performed which is it's cool like it's cool they don't you know, they're not great live because yeah. of what they do in the studio it's very exactly. complex the, the, the melodies the harmonies they yeah, do I can imagine right. that. it just doesn't work live but the stuff they, a lot you of hip hop is that way. Yeah, a lot of it is. Lot, yeah. Like Wu Tang, for example, there's seven of them. So, like, right. it's you like, go to a live Wu Tang, they yeah, all have microphones. Like <laughs> right. Seven You're like, guys ah! with a mic. Yeah, it doesn't right. work. But, but in your car, it's beautiful. I mean, yeah, it's, it's great. Exactly. Yeah, I went to see Wu Tang right before quarantine the, for the 25th anniversary of the 36th, uh, 36 Chambers, and they had brought on Redman to do ODB's parts, wow. which was fantastic. Man. Yeah. It was great. Red Man is, I, I mean, I could keep going on that list that I was talking about. Red Man's on there, Lost Boys, Mob Deep. Um, and, and then all the solo albums from those Wu-Tang members were, were really good. Yeah, agreed. Cool. We had Schoolie D on our show. Did you mention that? Schoolie D is old school. I don't know if you know Schoolie Yeah, I'm not D. sure. I don't really know Schoolie D. Yeah. Uh, but we also had, we also had. Um, be Real. Be Real, so that was cool. Oh, nice. Yeah, Be Real. I, lo- <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we love that. The show was part of it, man, yeah. And he remembered it's, it's that Len happened. brought him some cannabis. He remembered Len from way back in the no- early 90s. 1990. Wow. From 1990. <laughs> he remembers He's like, that? you were that kid that brought wow. me the cannabis at backstage at the Come show? Wow. No, it, it wasn't backstage. It was, oh, it was at his hotel, his right? Yeah, it was wow. to his room. Uh, yeah, that's was, good. Uh, See, that's, how, that's right. the kind of impact cannabis can make on people. Yeah. Yeah. They still remember. It brings people together, man. Yeah, it really does, does, for sure. All right, last question, Len. Well, yeah, so... Good segue. What has cannabis meant in your life? Oh, that last question. Yeah. So, so like we were talking about bringing people together. I mean, a lot of my friends, um, we we became closer through through you know using cannabis together. I mean, from high school to college to as an athlete um, to life after sports. I mean, meeting you. I mean, this the cannabis is really a communal um, experience, and it's just this shared experience where. You know, it's about, I don't know, um, you, you do something together, you go somewhere together, you let your guard down, you enter this kind of higher plane together. And you have, yeah. and you have this, not even, you know, it's unspoken. I mean, yeah, you, you have amazing conversations and you learn interesting things about each other, but you also connect uh, in ways that you can't describe. And and so I think it's been really great for my friendships and yeah. even my relationship with my wife. I mean, we bonded that way. And so um, it's allowed me to not be so aggro as well and, and be right. so crazy. You know, it's allowed me to kind of come down and observe before I jump um, and be more thoughtful and empathetic, um, sympathetic to people. You know, not right. always think about myself, not be so selfish to put myself in other people's shoes. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what it's meant for me. Has it meant you a little faster getting up? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little Not faster so getting up anymore. <laughs> right. Well, I got a little baby down there too. Now he's a one-year-old, so oh, we make wow. sure I'm fast yeah, getting up. Yeah, he's Yeah, you're not actually ever gonna go to sleep after that. Yeah. No, <laughs> I haven't slept in a couple of years now. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so b bonus question, uh, if you can remember. D describe what your room looked like growing up. Mm. So I had a lot of stuff on the walls. I had, um, you know, cut out um, pictures of girls from the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Those right. were up on the wall. Nice. Um, all of the CD, the square CD covers of all those albums I was described to you oh, wow. were on the wall cool. in like checkerboard type of thing yep. situation. Blacklight posters for sure, um, two or three of them. And then this was more in high school. But um, prior to that, it was 49ers, Jerry Rice, right. gold fingers. There was this big uh, poster of him. He had like his hand was dipped in gold and he was holding a football. Um, yeah. Joe Montana, the 49ers in general. Uh, the catch. Did you that, have a picture of the catch? You know, I didn't have a picture of the catch, but that was definitely a big a, moment. A moment. Yeah, a big moment. Yeah. yeah. But I was only I was only like two years old when that happened. So oh, I, don't, God. I don't really And that made that. me feel very old also. <laughs> I know. I remember that too, John. <laughs> I but I also <laughs> had I also had Michael Jackson poster on my yeah. wall. I had Lamborghini on my wall, Ferrari yeah. Testarossa on my wall. Yeah. So uh, that was my childhood bedroom. Very cool. Nate. Thank you so much this is for so interesting, being man. on the show. What it was so guest. good. I'm super, super grateful. Uh, where can people uh, contact you, find out more? Is there anything that you want to uh, have people contact you for? You know, uh, writing any more books? Yeah, yeah well, so, I want to find out about the books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh, I've written two books. I want to write another one. I don't know what that one's going to be yet, so I'm kind of looking for that next idea. But um, I use Twitter to promote the kind of the stuff I write. And if you ever mm -hmm. want to contact me, Twitter is a good place to do it. Or if you ever want to look at the stuff I write, I do post it all to my Twitter account. And that is at Nathan Sirius, N-A-T-H-A-N-S-E-R-I-O-U-S. Don't really use Instagram. Don't really use Facebook too much. So Twitter is the way to go uh, for, my, for my work. Great. Great. I'm, yeah. I'm subscribing right now. I'm, awesome, I'm following you. Thanks, guys. Brother, thank you so much for being here, and uh, let's stay in touch. And uh, yeah, hopefully, when you have your next uh, idea for a book, uh, well, you know I'm calling again you for my we'll, uh, my podcast right about now to talk about your book for sure. Right about now, so <laughs> love it. Funk's over, cool, man. All right, All right, guys. Man. Appreciate you. Me on. Take Thanks care. a lot. Thank you, Nate. Right. Bye, bye, care, guys. Man. See ya. I love when you have athletes on, man. Yeah. He's They're great, so man. Cool. He's such a he's such a descriptive speaker. Like I yeah. saw him the first time I saw him was at Harvard. Uh, so they were there was a conference. I'm trying to remember which one, but uh, that that panel that he was talking about uh, with Ricky Williams and, yeah. uh, and all that, and Marvin Washington, I think, may mm -hmm. have been there, and Kyle Turley, and he was so eloquent when he spoke, and I was like, uh, it really connected with me. So I'm I'm so grateful that uh, you know we became friendly. Uh, maybe I can work some reconciliation but it, it sounds like yeah no well it sounds yeah that sounds like there's two sides to that story but um yeah yeah you tried i mean i thought that was that was brave that you should even ask and he was very <laughs> gracious about answering it but he's kind of like uh no olive branch for me for, i for know him. i know i, I <laughs> well, told you know evan what? too I, I i knew i knew the story but i knew it from you know evan's side right but i right. I, I can I can empathize with the. With I think what you happened. did what you could. Yeah, I think you did. Yeah. And if we ever have a falling out, we'll have him broker the, <laughs> the peace deal. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Um, I wanted, do you know 
the nominees uh, for the 2021 Rock Hall. I looked it up for you because this is why I'm such a great co-host. So this year, should I mention? Should I tell you who's coming? This is who. So we're going to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, our favorite topic, very contentious topic. Um, So the nominees this year for 2021 are the Foo Fighters, the Go Go's, Jay Z, Carol King, Todd Rundgren, and Tina Turner. And there's going to be an additional class of 2021 in the performers category, LL Cool J and Billy Preston. But good list. Which I don't understand. Yeah, what does that that mean? mean? Does that mean we don't, you're not quite good enough to be in the Hall of Fame, but we're going to give you some performers category? Yeah, it sounds a little bit like a bullshit thing. Um, well, I think uh, what Jay Z, and this is the, I don't want to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to treat this really carefully because I don't want to say people don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. It's not up to me to decide. Uh, I just think that there may be some people that should be in ahead of the people that are in. So I'll kind of that. And I don't know what the, you know, like how in the NFL, there's a certain year, like in the baseball and the NFL Hall of Fame, there's certain, like, you have to have been out of the game for like 10 years oh yeah no this is the way so that i do know so it's it's to qualify it has to be 25 years from your first original album release so from the year that you dropped your first album it has to be 25 years has it been 25 years from jay-z from his first album jay-z seemed like a weird here's my issue with the rock and roll hall of fame i mean mean, i've got a lot of issues with them and we i have no uh, we have. I mean, I've never. By the been, way, Quest, Quest Love has apparently a lot of influence in does. the uh, in the committee. So, so oh, with the well, I'm into, Gary no, you, you turned me on to Quest Love's uh, podcast, and I listened yeah. to his interview with the Avalanches yesterday, which was really great. But um, yeah. but but to step back, and, and I was doing a little research on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and and there is some criticism which I think is warranted, which is it is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So why is Jay Z? Um, being, I just feel like it's a weird, already kind of a weird thing. Like, let's, I mean, Jay-Z's not rock and roll. There, there should be a rapper's Hall of Fame. I, I don't, it's not probably as big as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at this point, but it should be. I think it's yeah. getting a little murky with, like, who's in it. Like, it feels weird that Jay-Z is in a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and then you have, like, um, I don't know. I, I feel like there should just be a music hall of fame. It should be, it should be either the name should be changed to the music hall of fame, which would then be cool. Or, uh, and believe me, I'm like the first person, like I love hip hop so much more than I love rock and roll. So, you know, this is not, not a slight against hip hop. Well, but, it's, it's not even, it's not even hip hop. It's all the other, like, even if you look at the other nominees, they have, right. uh, it's true. Of music. You know, there's jazz is players Tina and some Turner jazz rock musicians. and roll. I mean, I guess she's kind of rock and roll. She's, she's, she's like more R&B. rock than, yeah. Aretha Franklin. Right. You're right. It's not just hip hop. It can be a lot of. So I feel like it's weird, a little bit weird already. Like you don't have like you have the Country Music Hall of Fame that you don't have like, you know, rockers in the Country Music Hall of Fame. It just it's weird. But, you know, but, I you, get, have, but you have country musicians in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You do, which is another thing. Right. So there's no there's no dividing line. It's kind of a free for all. Anyway. Uh, you're right. Jay Z seems like a weird choice. Although Biggie was in last year, I think Biggie well, got in. Yeah, last year. Biggie was in last year. But but okay, just just for this year alone. So you have LL Cool J as the, the honorable mention or whatever that that award is. Who preceded Jay Z? Yeah, right. But they put Jay Z in maybe in his first. I love Jay Z by the way. I, I, I think he's do. great. But uh, I mean, besides, where's African Bombada, if yeah. that's the case. Like, that's where it gets really crazy, because all the founders of hip-hop aren't really in there. 
You know, right. are, I mean, the Sugar Hill Gang is not in the Hot Rock no. Hall of Fame. No, and, like, and they are like the, the tribe is not in. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, Jay Z. It's yeah. Jay Z is obviously a legend in hip hop and a very important figure. But if you you can't really put Jay Z in if you don't put in the the founders, right? right. Like you're saying, Afro God is Grandmaster Flash in? Sugar Hill Gang's not in. Yeah, I think Grandmaster, Grandmaster Flash, Flash might be in. I think is in, and this is this is the this is such an LL Cool J is a founder. I mean, he's early days. Well, right. you, if if you're gonna start with and Run DMC is in and Public okay. Enemy, like if you're gonna start with that, let's build the foundation first. If they're right. gonna start introducing hip hop as part of and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame means it's to me now it's the Music Hall of Fame. It's no longer Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because you're letting in all different genres, okay? So if that's the case, let's build the foundation. If we're introducing hip-hop, let's put in the Sugar Hill Gang. Let's put in, uh, you know, uh, Grandmaster Flash. Let's put in African Bombada. Let's let all these bands and then foundationally get us to what's modern, uh, Snoop and uh, and Jay-Z and, and Biggie and whatever, uh, you know, Tupac. But I Wu-Tang Clan. How do you, if you're not going like, to... Are they I not in? T- no, they're not in. Oh, Jesus Christ. But again, it's weird because it's like the Music Hall of Fame. Just call it the Music Hall of Fame. Freaking, exactly. The heart of rock and roll might be in Cleveland, which is already weird because, I I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I voted have for have it you by been accident. To Did I ever tell you that story? What's that? You voted for... So, yes, for I Huey was Lewis? Uh, in... I was in Dayton, Ohio, out of all places. I went to the, the Wright Brothers Museum, and I went to the air show. And outside, they had a tent, and they were just, you know, giving you some free shit if you sign your name. And I didn't realize that I signed my name to vote for Cleveland, the Rock and Hall of Fame. And, and uh, it was Philly uh, against Cleveland. There were the last two cities, and my vote uh, put it over to, to Cleveland. Oh, my there. God. No, I'm kidding. I have no idea. I know. Your, your vote didn't, but, I mean, still, it— <laughs> Well, the heart of soul should be in Philly, but um, yeah. I don't know, or Detroit. I mean, Detroit right. is a huge, uh, you know, Motown, all that stuff. All right, so let's go. I don't know how you want to do this, but even even this year's list, uh, like Foo Fighters. Okay, so I'll just tell you some some of the bands that are, or musicians that are not in. Right, and, and then Fighters, you tell me if the Foo Fighters are any better or should are more deserving. Right. Yeah, and this is where it becomes difficult because I like the Foo Fighters. I'm me a too. fan. But uh, Ozzy Osbourne is not in. Mm, uh, that's hard for you. I mean, Willie Motorhead. Nelson is not in. Well, well, there you go. Willie Nelson's not in. And he's a country and, But But they have other country musicians that are right. in. And Willie is a crossover artist as well. You know, he had some pop-type songs and, and hits. Didn't he, do, didn't he do some with Julio Iglesias? And that was uh, like a right. top-ten hit. To all the girls I've loved before. Love before. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, Let's look at this list. I'm looking at the list of who's not in it, and it's, it's shocking. All right. All right. So uh, uh, what about Ozzy. Bad Company? Bad Company. Bad Company's not in. Devo is not, not in. Devo. I mean, it's ridiculous how many yeah. people there are in were influenced, and they actually said they were influenced by Devo. Right. And they're not in. Right. Uh, exactly. Um. I, Tom Jones, if you're going to go soul and the, like that old school, Tom Jones, I mean, has a, a ton of hits. Diana Ross. Diana Ross shocked me. The Smiths are not in. Um, yeah, I know, I know that. I knew that was a big one. You know, that you was too. a big one for me. Rick James, yeah. bitch. Rick James is not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, so 
let, let's see. Judas Priest is not oh in. God. Yeah, that must have been uh, tough for you. Jethro Tull is not in. How do you have not Peter Jethro Tosh? Tull. I know. How do you not have Jethro Tull in the Hall of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? How do you not have Peter Tosh? And again, that's a weird one. Like reggae. I'm sure Bob Marley is in. But of like, course. But like, at what point do you draw the line with Ray? Like, how can you have Bob Marley but not have Peter Tosh? Like, that's like he's like a <clears throat> hugely influential person in reggae. Right. Um, and then you have soul. You have you have yeah. soul musicians. Barry there, right? White is not in. Right. Do, you do, don't do, have do, Barry do, White exactly, and you don't have the Commodores. Ugh. Shot. But you, you have, have Lionel the Richie, right? Well, how can you have Lionel Richie without the Commodores? Without the Commodores? No, it's shocking. Farner is not in. Um, let me yeah. see what else. Peter Frampton, the Monkees, <laughs> are not in the Hall of Fame. And meanwhile, cool the you have Chicago cool the is not in. And yep. by the way, Bon Jovi is in the Hall of Fame. I mean, I don't know how you feel about Bon Jovi, but <laughs> I, I was never. I, I respect Bon Jovi. I'm, uh, you I feel know, like I'm they're like a. So. That's like a pop band. I, I don't know. Like exactly. they don't like. Well, how were they influential? You know, I mean, they had like a lot of hits. They had a few hit songs, and there was a moment. But how is that like? How are they more influential and important right. in music than say well, all the bands we just mentioned, Judas Priest? Right, or and you have you have Blondie, in, and I yeah. like Blondie. But you don't have Pat Benatar in, right. and you don't have uh, Diana Ross in, but you have Blondie. I know. Which makes no sense. Uh, and you, you know you're what, absolutely right. You know mm-hmm. what's an interesting one? There's certain, like, solo artists that are in that aren't, that are, like, amazing in bands, but on their right. own aren't really great solo artists. So, like, like for example, and, and look, there's no bigger Beatles fan. I l- fucking love the Beatles, right? But Ringo Starr, just on his own, was nominated. Now, I, I could, he's like, I mean, really? Like, I know it's like almost like saying God should be in the Hall of Fame, but why is Ringo Starr like on his own in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Like, he's. Well, I think he he has a solo career. He still tours and he, he does. had the travel. It's not very good. Straight. I guess maybe the travel. But again, that was part, he was part of a band. I don't know. It's That's very true. controversial. I'm going to say that Ringo Starr. Get him out. Should not be in the hall. <laughs> Get him out. Just kick him out. As a solo artist. What has he ever done? And then Stevie <laughs> Nicks is another one who I absolutely love Stevie Nicks. But right. she really had like a few good solo songs, but she really is Fleetwood Mac. And so it's just, it hurts um, because. Well, you, you're right. You're right. Stevie but, Nicks but, is in, but like Diana Ross. But here's the, fl- here's the flip side of this. So the faces are not in, but Rod Stewart is in. Right. So, you know, you have uh, yeah. where there are a lot of faces hits. I think Rod Stewart as a solo musician probably had more. So is Genesis in? And is Phil Collins in? You know, that right. kind of thing. I don't Peter know. Is Phil, Phil Collins, I know, is not in. Right. As an individual what about, artist. What about Peter Gabriel? I don't know. Somehow I feel like Peter Gabriel should be. Dude, in. They don't have Chubby Checker in the Hall of Fame. How do you not have Chubby Checker that, in the Hall I mean, of Fame? He, didn't he kind of start rock and roll? <laughs> like, I thought so. Wasn't he one of the guys definitely that one was of the, like first. the originators? Yeah. It makes no sense. Uh, and then you have, you know, and then I think, you it's, have fat, bands I think like, it's fat shaming. I think that if he had been a little bit lighter, oh yeah, pissed me off. They're just very, so, the so meters. There's a couple other ones that, that I want to, uh, I, I want to mention. Joe Cocker is not in the rock and roll of fame. Crazy. I mean, huge, huge, major hits and like and major influence. Yeah. At huge a certain influence. And, and here's, so let's, let, let's do this. Read that list again. Uh, of the 2021 nominees, and I'm going to tell you who I think should be ahead of them. Even though I respect them, and I'm, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm really proud and happy to for some of these bands to be in. But like Foo Fighters, let's start with that one, okay? Yeah. So 
if you're going to include Foo Fighters, and I already mentioned Ozzy and Motorhead and all that, but let's even go more modern. You don't have Soundgarden in, mm. uh, which is the same. You don't have Jane's Addiction in, and you don't have bands like Scorpions, who paved the way for bands like that, who have huge hits internationally, Black Crows, who at one point were like the number one rock right. band in the world. They had like they uh, were like the only people doing rock and roll for a little while, like seriously. Exactly. Like old Their album rock. went uh five times platinum. I mean it's ridiculous for for them not to be in uh and and then and I already mentioned Jethro Tall. So yeah, okay. So that's that's rock. What what's the next one? Uh Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters, um who else do we got on this list? It's the Foo Fighters, the Go Go's I mean, that's a pop 80s band, but it's weird that the Go-Go's is going in. They had, like, four really good songs, but you don't have Duran Duran. You don't have... Uh, if you're going to go you, in that kind of... Wait, Duran Duran is not in? No. Duran Duran is not in the Hall of Fame. Oh, they, they need to be in. I, I mean, mean, Billy Idol. The... If we're going to be going into the 80s stuff, like Billy Idol, Duran Duran... Well, Eurythmics. The Eurythmics are not in. Um, Kraftwork, that hurt me. Kraftwork wait, hurt me personally. I thought they were in. No, didn't are they get they? nominated? Maybe I don't not. think so. I mean, I, I could think, be wrong. I think Kraftwerk were the most nominated. I think they were brought up five or six times. But I just think that people don't that. really understand Kraftwerk. Like, you have to understand, I mean, their influence on hip-hop is, like, unbelievable. Oh, <laughs> like, there wouldn't be Africa Bombada without Kraftwerk. But, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, New Order is not on the is not in the. You're right. They're not on because I, I'm just checking the list. Uh, they are. New Order not, is not. New Order. New is, Order is not. Nope. Um, so again, the Go Go's, they're you know they had a lot of hits, and I think you know there's a, there's something about them being an all female band at a time when there was very very few female bands that is noteworthy, and so maybe that's part of it. But don't know, as far but, as like I, their hits, like per, and like their influence, like the Go Go's weren't like. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the Go-Go's were... Uh, there's a very good documentary on the Go-Go's on, um, I don't know, one of the cable networks that I watched recently. But And I know that they were more influential than I realized they were. But yeah. but um, but still, I have nothing against the Go-Go's. I love the Go-Go's. It's just weird not to have Duran Duran. Well, yeah, Especially that's what I was do saying. Two, two name <laughs> bands with the same if you, name. If you're going to have that era, New Order, you have uh, the Eurythmics, you have uh, uh, Duran Duran, you... I mean, even Cool and the Gang not being in is, is kind of odd, but that is yeah. weird. Okay, so that's that's uh, Go Go's. Who's next? Or In Excess? In, in Excess was a band in. from Carol King. From... Now, Carol King, I can't argue with because she's kind no, of like a seminal songwriter. She's in. Yeah. Um, Todd Rundgren, I don't really know his music. Uh, I mean, I probably What's do. What's the bang on the drum all day? Oh, he's I don't want to play. Yeah, but, but he's a Philly guy, by the way. All right, Todd I'm not Rundgren, make fun of Todd Rundgren. Uh, has. A couple of hits, but he's also an amazing producer. So he's right. had so maybe a he's... shitload of uh, you know production successes uh, that he's done. So maybe all right, we, we give him production. a pass. I'm I'm fine with Todd Rundgren and Tina Turner, of course. I mean, it's almost of course. Uh, you know, she's and that's also a great documentary to watch. Yeah, yeah. I um. But, so but Tina Turner. But here's here's the thing with Tina Turner. Why is Tina Turner in and Diana Ross? No, that in? makes absolutely no sense. Because she Diana Ross had a great career with the Supremes, and then she had a great solo career. Of course. So of it, course. it's the Diana Ross thing is a mystery to me. I to me she's like a, you know, I mean she's like the the first lady of Motown. You can't like and Barry White. Yeah, and Barry White is up there, and I mean, 
he, Barry White has been responsible for many of my amorous nights. You know, you put on a little Barry White, <laughs> dim the lights. Do, 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 do. I wonder if Charday is on this list. Should, they should have the Sex Music Hall of Fame, and that would be like Charday. Charday is always Barry my go-to. White. <laughs> like, hey, uh, yeah, Charday was my go-to. Um, all right, well, who's next? All right, that's it. Those, and then we have this this LL Cool J mystery. All right, so here's so and here's the thing. Eric B and Rakim are not in. I mean, tragedy, right? Uh, and 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 if you're starting to introduce public dance, enemies in, I think. Public Enemy is in. Uh, I think NWA is in, I hope. NWA a couple of years ago. Right. But you have, Devo was the one that really freaked me out. I could not believe that Devo's in. But if you're going to start introducing more electronic music, and I saw some, mm-hmm. what about Daft Punk? Oh, yeah. What, for what sure. What about The Prodigy? Yeah. I mean, I feel like yeah. there's not enough. Um, uh like diversity yeah well not diversity i know that they try <laughs> very hard there definitely is not i mean by the very nature of rock and roll well, i meant i meant musical diversity I oh not not ethnic, ethnic and not uh, racial diversity no. yeah no I, no there's definitely not enough diversity and you know a lot of the criticism of the the nominating committee of the rock and roll hall of fame is that it's bo- a bunch of boomers so they're they're nominating people like you know like uh, what was this band that I was reading about? Paul, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and the Frankie yeah. Lyman and the Teenagers. You know, these are bands that were like popular in the fifties for yeah. like five minutes. But yeah, but if they're going to do that, why don't they? Uh, John Mayall's uh, blues. Uh, I mean, that's the guy who started Eric Clapton. All these other uh, musicians, they're not in. And then you, so yeah, I think. The, you know who's not in the Hall of Fame? That's really interesting. I that I just because I think he's so influential is Gary Newman. I don't know if you yeah. ever listen to Gary Newman's music. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. But I mean, Randy, Randy Newman's in. Okay, Randy Newman got in. Different spelling, <laughs> different family. But Gary no. Newman, I mean, he was doing kind of new wave before new wave even existed. I mean, I mean, right. Bowie was really the first. But then Gary Newman was like, if you listen to some Gary Newman records, that was like 78, 79. Right. You know, they weren't doing that sound until like the, you know, until like 82, 83. So he was very ahead of it, I think. I, I'm just pissed. This is all making me very mad. By the way, my daughter has to practice the piano in here in 10 minutes. I'm just, right. I'm just, I might have to vacate we'll, we'll my do, goddamn we'll have... studio, which pisses me off because I'm paying the, who's paying the note to have this studio? And then she's got to have her piano right behind me. There's the piano and she's got to practice on that. I have and the same, I have the same thing. And That's her teacher's coming my... over in a minute and, and I'm getting right. these texts, you know, are you going to be able to get out of there by, yes. you know what? I'm fucking working right here. That's Sorry. right. That's right. I'm you working. Tell you put down. Who wears the pants? Who wears the pants? (laughs) Epic Records wears the pants. I got my Epic Records. Epic Records. I like that. Yeah, I have. uh, I have my. uh, I don't know if you can read. Yeah, it's a stakes. 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 Is stakes is high. Oh. Oh, stakes is high. That's cool. I get it. Like the stakes is high. Is it a band? Damn soul. Oh. Stakes is high. Yeah. That's a cool one. That's a good one. Um, so do you, do you want to uh, do a, uh, uh, yeah, we'll, your we'll do a, have thing? you heard, uh, I'm just, you're going to do only my... yours today. I don't have a good one. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to finish my rant uh, okay. this way that this whole thing with the rock and roll fame, either you're going to make it rock and roll or you're going to make it the music hall of fame yep. because it's so unclear. You're allowing soul. You have some jazz musicians if you don't have Coltrane and Herbie Hancock and guys like that 
in the in the Hall of Fame, then it doesn't make any sense. So let's separate the Jazz Hall of Fame right. and only include. Why rock. don't they just say call it the Music Hall of Fame and then have like different divisions? Like in a museum, you go to different wings. You go to the the Romantics wing, and then you go to the Modern Art wing. Yeah. You know, just have different. I've never been to the Music Hall of Fame. I don't know how it's set up. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I've been yeah. to the Country Hall of Fame. Weirdly, because yeah. I don't even like country music. Well, I do now. <laughs> Ever since we talked to Tommy, we, I like country music. I know we got, we got. <laughs> but 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 it was very well designed, and it really yeah. takes you through the history of rock and roll. To go through the history of rock and roll, and you're talking about Chucky e. Checker, and then you're talking about Elvis, and then all of a sudden you're talking about Public Enemy. Like it just. It, it, Elvis right. was a hero to most, but he never meant he doesn't <laughs> even like me. Chuck D <laughs> hates Elvis. All right. <laughs> yeah, and and then you have Nirvana. And I think that they're they're giving some bands the disposition uh, of like uh um that's not the word I want to use. Special dispensation. That's what I want to right. say. Uh, they're given a special dispensation based on circumstances. Right. So they have they have Nirvana, who's in and has been in, but they don't have uh, Alice in Chains, like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, right. uh, and the other the other bands. They and they have Foo Fighters before they put in these other bands that were. I think super the Foo Fighters would be embarrassed that Alice in Chains isn't in there. And they are because they were so influenced by Alice in Chains. So I don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he said it. Uh, you know, Dave Grohl says like Alice in Chains and Perry Farrell were like their Jane's addiction. Like Jane's that. addiction and all those guys were. Is Jane's addiction in? No, they're not in. Right, because I and, know that. And, and War is not in. And and like Grand Funk Railroad. I mean, if you're gonna yeah. go down that road and you're gonna put in uh, what's his name, Todd Rundgren, why is George Thorogood not in? I know. So. And everybody always gets mad that Warren Zavon is not in. I don't know a lot about Warren Zavon, but I did like the Werewolves of London. All right, here we go. <laughs> that was a double, a double effect. I love it, man. It's a crooner uh, version. It was a crooner right. version. Okay. Let's see. Those guys are probably in the. Uh, in the Hall of Fame, whoever sings that freaking song. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that's how. Ready for this? Back we're Yes, I'm ready. I'm not. I'm closing my eyes so I don't see what the group right. is. Damn it! I okay. looked a little bit. All yeah, right. but you won't know who it is. Okay. No, I have no idea who the freaking hell. Is. Here we go. I'm big. Drink a cup of quarters on my course, then I could up. Hey. If I wrote the word, money stacks for all my daughters. Hey. Never ask for payment in the womb times nine. Now we see the blood on the street times try. Feminine energy, balance up the indestructible in the vaginal heaven in thine. Heaven is mine. 
spiritual, lyrical, mother sang sweetest taboo, ripple kind. If I was astonished by the level of shame, feminine energy, energy rain, intuition and ambition, intuition strain, intuition and ambition running through my veins. But what the love, let the healing begin. Again, again. That's dope. I feel a lot of Lauren Hill influence in that. Right? Plus there's, there's I was a thinking the African. same thing as soon as yeah. I heard it. Yeah, it's definitely like a little bit of Lauren Hill in there, but definitely like has an African vibe too, which is very cool. Yeah. So this is Sampa or Sampa. I'm not sure. S A M P A. S A M P A. The Great. She is a Zambian born Australian singer and rapper. And I think this is her first single. And she just has one album that's just came out. I think I could be wrong, but I, think, I love that. Uh, that yeah. Did so you hear I, that on KCRW? That feels like uh, no. KCRW music. No, uh, so dope. I've been, I I get stuck in these uh, in these YouTube uh, kind right. of holes. Right, I know. They I start they recommend shit to you, and you're like, oh my. And I am on. I do that for hours, hours. <laughs> That's I just fun. sit there. I, I love it. I All right. Love it, so. I mean, what did we do before that? We we were trapped. Like we, you know, like you couldn't do that, right? When we were oh, growing I, up, you know you what I used to, to do? <laughs> I'll tell you what I used to do of when Napster and Kazaa and all those things oh, came yeah. out. I would spend hours and hours and hours, and I have literally stacks of CDs that would burn uh, right. with uh, you know stealing stealing music. Sorry guys, I was stealing music yesterday. I, I know, but everybody was. So back in uh, the day, everybody was stealing yeah, music. We, maybe we should start a label and uh, see if anybody if anybody new uh, has some uh, some hits. I, I met this kid in Hawaii uh, who had a MF Doom tattoo. Young kid. And I'm like, hey, man, is that MF Doom? And he went off for like 30 minutes just talking to me about hip-hop and all this stuff. And he's got a SoundCloud account. And I'm like, man, all these people are unsigned, but they're pretty good and have these SoundCloud accounts. I know. So. My son being one of them. There you go. He just released his first record yesterday on SoundCloud. And um, You want to you plug it? Yeah, yeah. Check out um, Lords of Bebop with, uh, nice. with my son, Elijah M. Small. And Riley M. Schmiedemann. Uh, it's dope. It's dope. The song's called, uh, I forgot, <laughs> but it's Lord Bebop. That's something about being blind, blinded, or something like that. Anyway, all right, Len, this has been a fantastic show. I got to get out of here before um, yep. his her piano, piano teacher kicks me out of the room. But uh, cool, brother. thank you. We'll see you later. Yep. All right, peace. peace. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.